episode 175 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. The Pilot the Pilot podcast is brought to you by The Finer Points. They have an amazing ground school app for the knowledge you need to fly. To learn more, visit learnthefinerpoints.com. I'm Justine Harrison with AOPA. AV Nation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot Podcast. My name is Justin Seams and I am your host. Now, as all of you have known in the last couple of, of weeks, it seems like there has been some concern about the FAA and the Warbird case, considering uh, flight instruction, special exemptions. And I just really wanted to kind of get a better understanding of what was going on. So I reached out to AOPA and I was able to, to get in touch with Jennifer and Jennifer from AOPA put me in touch with Justine, who Justine is here to talk about this case. She's here to talk about what happened, the initial why between this, why this all started. Uh, we talk about the whole process of going through the appeals of taking the FAA to court and uh, where we stand with all, all the legalities that is going on in the warbird world and how this is going to spell into general aviation or experimental aircraft or flight instruction. So this is a really great episode and I really thank AOPA for coming on and uh, coming through short notice with putting this episode together. So Justine, Jennifer, thank you so much. And Kevin Cortez, thank you for, for putting me in touch with the right people. So I hope you all enjoy this episode. If you do enjoy the episode, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can check us out on Instagram at Pilot the Pilot and also the best coffee in the world. I know you're tired of me talking about it, but it really is so good. Pilot's Coffee and check out www.pilotscoffee.com. Aviation, I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. So any further ado, here's Justine from AOPA. Justine, what's going on? Welcome to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. I'm uh, I'm excited to have you on. I appreciate Jennifer for setting this up. Uh, this is kind of an interesting topic, and uh, most of my podcasts are usually interviews about the the specific person and their goals and they what they've done to get to where they are today. But today, we're going to mostly be talking about kind of a ruling that came out with warbirds and instruction, and it has the potential to kind of shape and change instruction. Uh, and kind of how everything works. So uh, why don't you give a little bit, uh, just a brief insight on what has happened and kind of where it is right now. Sure. And most people don't realize it, but there's actually three cases uh, that were related to the same operation and same set of facts. So the one that's been in the news has been a case that went before the District of Columbia Circuit Court of Appeals, which is known as the mini Supreme Court in a way. It's right beneath the the U.S. Supreme Court. And what happened there was uh, the FAA issued an emergency cease and desist order against a warbird operator who was providing flight instruction in their P-40 Warhawk, which is a limited category aircraft. Now, there are also two other cases the FAA has um, initiated. So the FAA has a certificate action going against the CFI and a civil monetary penalty they're pursuing against the aircraft owner. And so what happened is they issued an emergency cease and desist order. And the background to that is the FAA, the local FISDO folks, had told the CFI, hey, listen, we believe you need an exemption to do what you're doing. The CFI talked to their lawyer and said, not so clear that that we do. And so the lawyer went back and forth with FAA chief counsel and the FAA's chief counsel then sent a letter saying, listen, we do believe you need an exemption to do what you're doing. A letter went back to the FAA 
uh, from the CFI and aircraft owner that said, we believe you're wrong. Um, and so indicated that they weren't going to stop doing what they're doing. So as a response, the FAA issued an emergency cease and desist order. And that is what the airman and the aircraft operator appealed. And that immediately put them in front of that DC Circuit Court of Appeals. So it's kind of a convoluted situation where uh, the FAA asked someone to stop what they were doing and do it differently. They asked them twice. Uh, they had a difference of opinion. And when you have a difference of opinion on what's legally required with the FAA, you end up in court. As you should, right? <laughs> you think, yeah. <laughs> but it, it's well, interesting you, you brought up uh, interpretation because I worked for a Part 135 company and they had their own interpretation of how to do the laws. Uh, and they, they say they get a lawyer to sign off on them and they operate that and they deem that as legal. So I'm guessing... There's a ton of interpretations out there, and I'm guessing the FAA only really truly believes their interpretation. They don't care about how much you paid this lawyer to interpret the far aim or interpret the laws. It's what they say is kind of going to go, right? Exactly. And what I think is really important for pilots and aircraft owners to realize is, you know, we look at there's the law, and then you have the regulations. And then maybe there's some case law from cases that have been heard in front of judges. But other than that, you're relying on interpretations. And when the FAA gets a letter from somebody who says, listen, I'm a little confused about what this regulation means. Can you clarify in this particular factual scenario uh, what your regulation means? When the FAA responds to that with a legal interpretation, that's not law. That's not a regulation. It's the FAA's opinion. It tells you where their head is on it. It doesn't mean that their opinion is correct, but it tells you from an enforcement perspective what their thinking is. And if you do something differently, then you risk ending up in court uh, as this particular airman and aircraft owner did. How often does the FAA and say uh, um, a CFI or in this situation get to court? Is this a very common occurrence or is this very rare? No, this is pretty rare. And, and particularly emergency cease and desist orders are really, really rarely used tools. And they have a unique mechanism that uh, allows you to appeal it immediately to that uh, circuit court of appeals. Whereas for the other two cases that are that are going on, the certificate action, that goes in front of an NTSB administrative law judge. And then the uh, civil monetary penalty goes in front of the Department of Transportation law judge. So those cases take time to get on the calendar, to be heard, to do the whole litigation process of discovery and exchange of information. Whereas this particular one with the emergency cease and desist, the FAA issued the cease and desist, the airmen and aircraft owner appealed and boom, you're in front of the judges. So was this whole, was this a safety thing or is this just a pure regulation where they, they thought that you needed an exemption or you needed to apply for a separate certificate or was it an actual safety thing? Well, you know, that's a great question. I think the, who you ask, uh, the answer might change. So the FAA is saying that if you are operating a limited category aircraft, um, and this particular warbird is a limited category aircraft, and there are less than 400 of them on the registry, so it's a relatively rare aircraft. If you're operating that, the FAA says, hey, we believe you need an exemption uh, to provide flight training in that 
and you didn't have an exemption. The FAA has been giving exemptions since the late 90s uh, for people providing third-party flight training uh, to members of the public. However, these aircraft have been around ever since World War II ended. And before the late 90s, no exemptions were issued. And there was no formal policy announcement that ever came out from the FAA about you must have an exemption to do this. So the airman and the aircraft owner do have some reasonable arguments to say, hey, FAA, I'm not sure you do need an exemption to do this. But until the cases can be heard and fully argued, that emergency cease and desist is in place. And the FAA would argue that this is about safety because exemptions provide a high level of oversight. They tell you what you can do maintenance-wise, what you can do training-wise, and then you're getting surveyed and monitored. And so the FAA would argue that that is required to provide the safety that they believe is needed. So how difficult is, say, getting this exemption? Is this really worth causing a huge stink over? Is this going to put the company over? It's kind of one of those things like, why why not just go for the exemption if it's really easy and, and not even cause this whole stink and this whole mess in the first place? Well, that's always a personal choice. You know, some people just really believe in in fighting on principle of things when they believe things should be a certain way. Uh, but whenever you do that, particularly if the FAA has a difference of opinion, um, this is what you risk, which is getting into a legal battle. Now, the exemptions that are put out for flight training and limited category aircrafts, by the time you send and submit your application package for exemption, uh, which is not something you can just slap together. You have to put a lot of thought into it uh, and thoroughly address uh, why this is in the public interest, how you're going to provide an equivalent level of safety, and a variety of, of details related to those. Um, once that information package goes into the FAA, it's months until you hear back on whether that exemption is granted. Um, on these exemptions, it's typically at least four months And then your exemption only lasts for a couple of years. So you've got to go through this process over and over and over. Wow. Okay. So yeah, I mean, that would be annoying, I would say. Uh, Do you think this is, this helps the FAA's kind of... um, the bad guy kind of personality that some people think, you know, why like do things without getting the FAA's attention almost, you know, like it's better to ask for forgiveness later than to go through this whole process because the, the big bad FAA is looming over you. Well, I think here, one of the interesting points that, that people don't talk about very often is before the FAA took legal action, They went to the airman and said, hey, listen, we have a difference of opinion. We think you should apply for an exemption. Had the airman applied for an exemption at that time, it's not clear that this whole legal battle would have erupted. So um, when the FAA says, hey, listen, we think you should be doing things a little different way than you are, what we do see is these happen as legal battles less than they used to in the past. And that's thanks to the compliance program that's in place, where a lot of things that used to immediately become legal battles that the FAA says, hey, listen, I think that there's a mistake, a misunderstanding, or something like that here. We just want to bring you into compliance. Typically, that's when you work together with the FAA and a legal battle doesn't happen. And that happens in the vast majority of situations nowadays. 
I mean, there are very few cases that that ever make it to a hearing um, and become formal legal battles. Many more issues are handled in the compliance program than legal enforcement. So where do we stand right now with uh, what's going on in the trial or the hearing? Well, that's a great question because we asked the FAA for some clarification. And unfortunately, uh, they sent us a letter back that makes things a bit murkier. And so uh, the one thing that was decided out of the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, the one decision put before them is, will you review this cease and desist order and then decide whether it should stand or not? And the court decided, no, we're going to decline to review. They did not go into, you know, tons of detail. It's only a two-page opinion. And there wasn't a case with lots of, you know, witness testimony and other evidence arguing whether the FAA's position is actually correct. And that's what's going to happen in that those two other cases that are going on. But in the wake of this, the FAA is acting as if it's won the case on on everything. And it's especially strange given the fact that the opinion was issued in as an unpublished opinion. What that means is that the panel of judges in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals didn't think they were setting any new precedent. And this isn't required to be cited as precedent. All they decided was just not to review the cease and desist order. And the rest of the issues can be heard in front of the other judges. But the FAA is is taking a position now as if some of the language in the in the opinion from the DC Circuit Court is actually a binding decision. And that's not clear. But what it does tell us is if you are providing uh, flight instruction in a limited category aircraft, the FAA does believe you need the exemption. Um, it raised some other questions about, well, there's some other regulations that have similar wording about not carrying persons or property. Uh, experimentals have that. Uh, primary category aircraft have that. And so what does it mean for those groups? What does it mean for uh, flight instructors in general and the characterization of when you get paid for flight instruction? Because the court opinion mentioned in their analysis, not the holding, but in their analysis that the regulation said you can't carry persons or property for compensation in the plane. And they said, well, there was a student in the plane, so the plane was carrying a person, and the instructor was getting compensated. Boom. You met that threshold. And that is at odds with the way the FAA has always characterized compensation of flight instruction, where they've clearly said, you're not getting paid for common carriage. You are not getting paid to carry people. You're getting paid to instruct and educate a student. And so that's where all these questions are swirling around right now. So what is that? So the court is essentially reading it a different way than the FAA has been for the last however so long it's been in law. Um, what kind of, who rules? Like what, so does the court have the power to say, hey, if you're a flight instructor, you have to have a 135 and that's that. Or is it a, a rewrite of the, the FAR aim to make it more clear in defining uh, who's who and what you're doing and what's what? Well, a couple of things. Let me address the 135 issue really quickly. Uh, at this point, given the regulations in place, I'm not concerned 
uh, unless something dramatic changes, about needing a 135 for flight instruction. And the reason why is 14 CFR 119.1 talks about all the things that you can do that don't require um, an air carrier certificate. Student instruction is one of those. Aerial survey is another one, which I know you have experience with. So uh, there are a variety of areas, that, including student instruction, that say, even though there's compensation involved, you do not need to get an air carrier certificate. But the question that does get raised here is, well, if, if you are calling it compensation for carrying someone, what kind of medical certificate do you need to do that now as an instructor? And some other questions like that. So where that will get decided ultimately is in in front of that NTSB judge on the certificate action case, they'll address those issues. And it may also get addressed in front of the Department of Transportation judge. In the interim, the FAA is going to argue that those were probably already decided by the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which is not necessarily the case. So all it does is cast a lot of questions around this, which is why the FAA said in a letter that they are looking to issue policy that clarifies what they believe the impact of the decision means. When they went, when they started this whole thing, when they went and offered a cease and desist, the FAA had no intention of opening up kind of Pandora's box and what has been created, right? They just wanted a simple cease and desist, please apply for an exemption. They weren't expecting it to kind of turn into this whole kind of uh, show that's been going on, I guess. Well, yes or no. I mean, anytime the FAA uses a tool like that, they know it can be appealed. And remember, they had two other cases uh, going as well, the certificate action and then the civil monetary penalty against the aircraft owner. So, you know, once the FAA in- initiates legal enforcement cases, they know that that uh, things can erupt in the courts. However, just like most litigation, very few cases ever actually make it to the courts, but this one in particular did. So we're talking about the kind of the goals of each side. So the goals of the person with the cease and assist, it might be kind of a, uh, a principal thing. They want to, they really believe that they are right. Their interpretation is correct. AOPA's Pilot Protection Services is made for pilots who love to fly. Welcome to Pilot Protection Services, where a medical certification staff, legal services staff, and panel attorneys take on the struggles that all pilots deal with. From staying out of trouble with the FAA, becoming a better pilot, to staying healthy so you can stay in the left seat longer. We're proud to help over 66,000 AOPA members keep doing what they love most every day. Check them out before your next flight at aopa.org backslash PPS. What is, like, I guess, the short-term and long-term goal for the FAA? Do they want more regulations? Do they, do they want to have kind of uh, more guidelines set, more precedents set? Or, and kind of what's the short-term goal as well for the FAA getting this done? Justin, that is a great question. I wish I could read the FAA's mind on this one. Um, because I, I, even after reading the most recent letter from them, I'm not clear on what they're thinking and, and, and why they're thinking that uh, and how they get there um, from a logic standpoint. But um, what we do know is, particularly for limited category aircraft, they're under a lot more scrutiny ever since the B-17 crash. 
Um, so we do know that there's a lot of focus on the warbird community. And remember, warbirds uh, can be in a variety of categories. Some of them are standard category aircraft. Some of them are limited category, about 400. Uh, and some of them are in the experimental category. And what you can do in your plane and what permission you need to do certain things all depends on the airworthiness category of your plane. So for this, it started out as a case involving limited category, but in the latest letter that we just got from the FAA, the FAA is saying, well, we think that we can extend restrictions also to the experimental and the primary category aircraft. And if you look at experimentals, there's over 30,000 of those on the registry. And so if the FAA says, listen, you need a letter of deviation authority to be able to get training in an experimental, you're going to have tens of thousands of aircraft owners who can't even get a BFR in their own plane without getting FAA permission, which is, first of all, unwarranted. That's never been required um, to get training in your own plane, and nor was it ever required for somebody in a limited category aircraft. Um, so we just don't know where the FAA is coming from here. It's just not making sense. And so we're trying to get the FAA to come and talk with some of the industry groups who have really serious concerns, because if the FAA moves forward with its current thinking on what is required in uh, limited or experimental or primary category aircraft just to get training, even if you own the aircraft and you're the student, um, that's going to get in the way of people getting training as often as they want, as often as they need. And as and the last thing uh, that further safety is to get in the way of aircraft training. I see, I, I see kind of the safety side in the way of when I was building my time, uh, some people do things a little shady, you know, you know, people in aviation that are trying to make a quick buck, they kind of overlook maintenance. So I cannot understand the safety side of things. Now that's not saying that everyone operates that way and not saying that everyone needs to, to have the FA watching over their, their programs and making sure they're maintaining the plane safely. So I can kind of understand that argument in a way. But what I don't understand is making it harder for someone to enjoy aviation, especially general aviation, when in time, especially when we need more pilots, when the projections just continue to show how many pilots we're going to need in the future. And I know the pilot shortage has kind of been predicted forever, and it's always going to come, and it's coming, and it's coming, and it seems to never really kind of fully show its face. But there is going to be a time where we need a ton of pilots. And making it more difficult to get into aviation and what gets people in aviation is a lot of times their uncle owns an airplane. Their uncle has an experimental. Their uncle has a warbird or their aunt has a warbird, that kind of thing. It's those people that really capture kind of the love for aviation and they create people that want to be pilots, that want to go fly for a, a living and then also do fun flying on the side. So I don't understand uh, the idea of making it any harder than it actually than it already is right now. And I guess the hardest part now is just the money side of it. But when you when you had all these extra regulations, it almost seems like it's going to be impossible or it could be impossible for a lot of people to even go fly or maintain their airplane or to train in their airplane. Exactly. And so that's why uh, AOPA and 10 other organizations um, sent a really strongly letter, uh, strongly worded letter over to Administrator Dixon saying, hey, wait a second, this makes no sense. Um, if you move forward and you make it harder to get training um, in limited experimental and primary category aircraft, you're inviting a legal battle. That, and you're also getting in the way of safety. You know, 
to your point, if you're providing an airplane to a third party who's paying for it, in the past, well, and even now, the regulations say if you are providing both the plane and the instruction um, in an experimental airplane to somebody, then you need a letter of deviation authority. But if you, if the student provides the plane and the flight instructor is just providing the instruction, then you don't need a LODA. And same for uh, limited category aircraft. Never have we seen the FAA require or tell someone who owns their own aircraft who's not getting it from the instructor, hey, um, you need our permission to get instruction. So that's that's the part that really makes no sense right now. But uh, hopefully we will be able to have further discussions with the FAA and make sure that any policy that does come out um, that they announce makes sense and doesn't impede safety. Because as you said, a lot of folks, you know, they discover the joys of aviation and it turns into a career. And then even when they're in that career, you may fly, you know, triple sevens, uh, but you may also have a pits or, or a van's RV or an experimental or, or a 172 on the side. And we want to encourage that. Is there a history of the FAA trying to get this done is this kind of like a, a a common theme like you know sometimes they 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 really want something to happen and they'll fight it fight it fight it fight it and maybe have to come up in more creative ways to get it done have they wanted more kind of oversight more regulation over the experimental um kind of realm of aviation for a while or is this just all coming up with this one case well uh, they did um create more oversight for instruction in experimentals and actually it used to be worse than it is um, now. And then they created that LODA letter of deviation authority process. So, and just as a, as a piece of contrast, you know, when you apply for an exemption that goes into headquarters, it takes months to hear back at best. And then it's good for two years. If you're applying for a LODA, you can do that at your local flight standards district office. Um, but again, you still have to put together a complete package of information that's required. And the latest info I've gotten is it still takes six to seven weeks to get approval of a LODA through your local FISDO. Um, so the FAA has had enhanced oversight of experimentals for a while um, and limited category as well. But they seem to be taking things to a very different level and um, and a much wider impact than we've ever seen them do before. And it's, uh, it's really baffling. Yeah, no, it definitely is. And one thing is if they start getting more power hungry in one area, who's to say they're not going to continue this and in other areas and maybe some other agendas at DC or kind of uh, anti-aviation people uh, kind of want. So it's it's definitely kind of a precedented case and is a very important. Uh, looking forward to seeing kind of the conclusion of it and what's going on. But was talking about the conclusion, where are we in the process of kind of this being all said and done? How much longer do you think this will be? Uh, what, what's kind of the, the timeline for this? Oh, I wish I could tell you. Uh, where we are, where we are right now is that we have uh, gotten a letter, AOPA and other organizations uh, received a letter from uh, the head of flight standards, Ali Barami, who, by the way, is retiring at the end of this month. And uh, talking about uh, the FAA is going to issue 
some policy guidance on the impact of the decision. Um, what they outlined is what they think they're going to put as their policy. Uh, we vehemently disagree with, and, and we don't see any any logic or safety interests uh, furthered by it. So uh, we sent a letter back, and uh, we hope to have the ability to have some um, substantive conversations um, so that if the FAA does choose to issue some new policy, that it makes common sense. But the FAA doesn't have to. That's the strange thing. They don't have to play this hand right now. They can just also wait for those other two cases uh, to be argued, heard, and hear what the judges say in those. But that typically takes years. So the FAA may want to issue some some policies in the interim. And depending upon what they issue, they may have another legal battle on their hands. Interesting. Yeah, it's definitely interesting timing. And it's definitely, uh, like you said, they don't have to do this. So kind of what's the, the, the whole game plan? What's the backstory almost? Um, Justine, I know we had 30 minutes, so we're getting up on that. Uh, I guess kind of one thing is how do you predict, which is really hard to say predict, but affecting future flight instruction for just a normal student. Do you see this really coming down and kind of changing that and being kind of a a catalyst for change in all of flight instruction? Or do you think this is just going to stay to the limited category? Well, I don't see this impacting students directly. Most students are learning in standard category aircraft. You know, your Cessnas and your Pipers and, and things like that, your Diamonds. Um, what I see the potential for this to impact, depending upon the way the FAA wants to play its hand and what arguments it tries to advance and, and where legally, uh, is this could have some downstream impacts for flight instructors, uh, for medical levels, um, it could have uh, downstream impacts for how flight instruction is characterized. Is it considered? Uh, is it considered commercial operations? Um, that's not clear. Uh, but depending upon the view the FAA takes on this, it could impact the flight instruction industry. So those are the areas uh, that we're going to be watching really closely and advocating for our members' interests. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Justine, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate uh, you kind of giving your knowledge and what's going on and how this all unfolded and what the whole process is. It's just like fascinating how this all works and honestly, how long things take. It's, just, <laughs> it's comical, but uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be interesting to see how this unfolds and what uh, the FAA's kind of real game plan is and what they, they want out of this. So I really appreciate you coming on and uh, hopefully we can get you back on in a couple of weeks or who knows, maybe a year <laughs> when it's all finished <laughs> up. So thank you so much for coming on and spending some time with us today. All right. Thanks so much for having me. And that is a wrap of episode 175 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast. Thank you so much to AOPA, Kevin, Jennifer, Justine for coming on. I, I really enjoyed this episode. It really kind of made me think of doing more of these, more of kind of what's going on in the industry, kind of mix up interviews with uh, news or just kind of uh, build on the brand and see what we can do. So if you think, if you like this or you think that there's there's a need for more episodes like this, let me know. I'll continue to do these. You can send me an email or you can reach out to us on Instagram at Pilot the Pilot. Aviation, I hope you guys are having a great day. And as always, happy flying.